Welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Jen Sproul, CEO of the Institute of Internal Communication. Our organizations face an onslaught of challenges across the social, economic, political, and environmental spectrum. The systems we've used to support 21st century ways of life are weakening. The way we work requires dramatic transformation in response to these challenges. Internal communication is a crucial function that helps organizations achieve lasting change. This podcast explores the intersection between internal communication and the future of work. Every conversation is curated to help internal communicators better understand the risks and leverage opportunity. We really hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to a fresh episode of the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm your co-host Kat Barnard and as ever I'm joined by Jen Sproul and Dominic Waters. Today we have joining us Dan Sodegren, who some of you may remember gave one of the best keynotes at last year's festival in Nottinghamshire. Dan is a TEDx talker, a keynote speaker, an ex-marketing agency owner, a digital trainer, a serial tech startup founder, and now he's a media spokesperson. You may recognise him because he often features on the BBC Breakfast Sofa. His main area of interest is in the future of work, remote work, data, green tech and technology startups. He's a co-founder at Your Flock, a team engagement platform based on values. Dan, welcome. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much for such a, uh, a wonderful and warm and, and very long introduction. I mean, it was, that's fantastic. It feels like something I should A, be proud of and even my mother would be proud of. So I'm, I'm very happy with that. Thanks for all that. Of course, people on the podcast won't be able to see my face, but they'll be able to uh, uh, recognise my voice perhaps from the, from the TV and stuff. Dan, if we've made your mum proud, I think we're on to something there for sure. I wanted to have this conversation with you today because I know that in bits and bites, you and I have had a number of conversations about the future of work and what we think that might look like. And most specifically, the impact of technology on the future of work. And because you've got such a long background in marketing, which, as we all know, is very markedly impacted by the rise of digital communication, I just wanted to start by asking you what role you feel digital communication plays in the future of work? Well, yeah, no, it's a great question. So it plays a huge role, doesn't it? Digital communication is one of the key ways that we can kind of hold things together. And it's also one of the uh, the ways that we can start thinking about the future. In fact, you could argue that communication moulds the future itself. It creates a future. So, um, you know, I would always say that technology is going to be key to what we're doing course but as you're you're thinking about it digital communication itself has a chance to then create its own future and i've got to be careful that i don't kind of pontificate too much around it and rant around it but the reality is i mean i don't you were just saying about my my kind of varied background in tech and so yeah i mean some of the most interesting stuff that's happening right now and i think everyone on the podcast will have heard about gbt and gbt3 and gtp 3.5 and the soon to become gtp4 if you haven't do Google it and have a look at it. It's the uh, the chat GPT. It's actually something I talked about in the uh, TEDx talk. In fact, actually, the, the talk that I did for the Institute, uh, I talked about the, the introduction of uh, artificial intelligence and where it was going. That was only a few months ago. And actually, in those six or so months, uh, the whole world's changed. In fact, it only changed last week. 
I don't know uh, how many people are as geeky as I am on the on the podcast, as I say, but GPT came well, GPT came out maybe two, three years ago. But its abilities were, um, were, were limited, let's say. But 3.5 just came out about a week or so ago, which is kind of just at the start of December 2022. And now I think it was it's something like something, it's something ridiculous, like 2 million people have already played with it over a week. Yeah. So if you look at it in a different way to get to that million people, I think it took Instagram a couple of months to get up to that level, if not slightly more. Uh, it's taken this uh, AI system uh, a very, very quick amount of time. Now, obviously, we stand on the shoulders of giants and it's not like it's something that OpenAI was a company that people knew about before. But this whole new world of digital communication now, which is potentially going to be powered. Some of it might be powered by generative AI and, and clever systems. This is the stuff I was talking about, I say not only in the TED talk, but the talk uh, for the Institute itself. And this is the potential of the future of work for all of us, especially in communication. We're not talking about in the future now. We're talking about it's now. It's happening now. And so um, I have some very interesting conversations with marketeers and other people. A lot of people are very cross about it. A lot of people are very angry about the fact that artificial intelligence can do this. They thought they had a few more years. I can still remember uh, about three years ago, or maybe a bit longer because of COVID, but I uh, stood in, <laughs> this is how you lose a crowd, by the way. I stood in front of uh, like 100 marketeers from a very large company, and they asked the big question, you know, what's going to happen in the next five years? And I said, well, because of frictionless marketing and AI and a load of other things, uh, half of you won't have a job. That is not a good thing to say at that moment. I was not asked back, Kat. That's the honest truth of the matter. I was never asked back again by that particular brand and company, but it didn't mean it wasn't true. You know, I think we've got to be really aware now that the uh, we believed before that artificial intelligence didn't have the nuance and didn't have the human emotive capacity. Honestly, believed it would be five years off. This new jump is so quick that you know digital transformation, as we know during COVID, it's you know they say ten years of digital transformation happened in a year, but I think that ten years of digital transformation has just happened in the last week. It's that people are missing exactly how fundamentally this shift is fundamental. It's a huge one. And don't get me wrong, that comes with a very emotive response, just like, you know, the Luddites didn't like the spinning Jenny, etc. You know, we've got to be uh, a little bit aware that uh, digital communication as we know it is about to change in 2023, perhaps more than we can even even think now. I just realised I most probably just scared everybody who's listening to the podcast. I think it's an interesting, I mean, it is fascinating. And I know that I've been looking at the daily emails that Seth Godin, who's been a previous guest on here, has been sending out in the last week or so. I guess the question that I've got about it, and I don't doubt, you know, the the volumes of money that, that are poured into investing in this space. But at a time when it seems to me that we're all craving authenticity and connection like never before. And also given how often in tech things come and go, I just wonder whether it's here to stay or whether it could be a flash in the pan. And by which I mean, let's not ignore it and pretend that it's not here and so on. I think we have to prepare for it. But I do wonder if it might be surplus to human requirements somewhat. I don't know what you think about that. Well, obviously, as, a, as, a, as someone who has the joy of being called a tech futurist, I'm always going to be looking to the future. So I always, uh, rather than looking to the past, as I joke on the with people from the BBC, if I hadn't got things wrong continually in my own life, uh, then you wouldn't call me a tech futurist. You'd actually just call me millionaire or billionaire Dan Sodergren. So you know, so, so you know, that's the reason why I'm I'm asked onto these things because they knew I jumped ahead of people far too early in the market. And I would say perhaps if I'd done this five years ago, I'd done the same again. 
But I've waited for quite a while to be excited by artificial intelligence. I've waited for five years. I've known about GPT for a long time. Where it is right now is fundamentally different to where it was a month ago. And I think Seth Godin brilliantly, I mean, I'm, I'm an absolute massive fan. So I'm really happy that I'm even, even on this show. The fact that he you know, took following in his footstep is ridiculous. In my opinion, I've been a fan literally for 20 years and read all his, most of his books, etc. I read his blog almost daily. In fact, so much so much so that it's been parts of my life. And I kid you not when I say this, where I think Seth Godin's actually read my mind because he's literally gone into my brain and gone, this is the answer to that, Dan. This, by the way, also includes this stuff about AI. Because Seth said yesterday... He literally said, it's going to make mediocre stuff, yes, but it has the potential to do so much more. And then today he was talking about, literally today, he was talking about, uh, you know, we've got to be a bit careful that we believe, and this is slightly answering your point, because our brains will fill in the blanks, yeah? So, like, for example, if we don't realise that the post done on LinkedIn was done by AI, does it mean that we will differ in the way that we communicate with it? And the answer is, of course not, because we didn't know it was AI. Yeah. So it's the same principle. Like It's only when it becomes clunky and it becomes a problem. And I think there is a reaction at the moment, just like there would have been to the monks who were you know, didn't like the printing press. In fact, they smashed them up and said that, you know, you had to have ornate writing to do the words of God. Same principle now will be human beings will be saying this thing doesn't know what it's talking about and this thing doesn't have the nuance. But I think what we're missing to it is it's very simple is about I'm not saying it should take over communications far from it. I'm just saying it makes communicators life's easier because about 80 percent of your work or 50 percent of your work could be some of the heavy lifting can be done especially by the way in research especially by the way in so many other things i mean i don't know if you actually have played with chat gpt but if you do you'll start noticing that it starts to personalize its, its answers based on uh, on what you say <laughs> there's a lovely thing this gentleman used it to write we said to, to get for his child to get a, a message from santa because he was on the naughty list it's just worth googling anyway because you wouldn't think that the computer could do a nuanced answer to that but the answer is so beautiful that I almost cried. And also it made me realise I was no better a parent than the computer was. Now, that's, that's some scary. I mean, I'm a terrible parent. But, you know, but honestly, read it and you just go, oh, my God, that's so lovely. But you wouldn't think a computer could write it until last week. I have to say, Dan, I have never just this this GTP thing. Uh, like you, I remember oh, the festival, you talking about it to all of our delegates and they're, they're sort of going, oh, I don't believe that's quite where we're going to be. It feels too far away. But my inbox and my WhatsApp messages have exploded just in this last week or so about this new GTP. And like you, I, I've been a geek. I have been on and I have played with it. And uh, I asked it to write about direct debits in medieval times. It was a fascinating story as I was working on a direct debit strategy for our business. And I've also been on a number of calls as well in the last couple of weeks around, from an internal comms perspective, the challenge of burnout, of overwhelming, of broadcast, that there is just so much to do that we are being consumed by pushing out information. And everyone's sort of going, could GTP be the answer? But... Can it really bring in the human voice? And I think that there's loads of excitement around it from my perspective. But then, like you say, there's a lot of fear from communicators who are perhaps even more resistant than the marketing community because they feel their job is to convey sentiment, to convey emotion, to convey tone. You know, there are limitations to it. But it, as I've played with it, it does do amazing things when you just type in simple words. But do you think there is a real balance between how it could be used for a broadcast mechanism versus a two-way dialogue mechanism? 
I'm not a hot. I've, I've actually seen how people have used it as a two-way dialogue mechanism, and I've also seen how people who aren't great at creating emails have asked it to. In fact, there's a gentleman who's quite famous on it now in some of the threads because he created a, a tool for a gardener who wasn't particularly good with words. And then the gardener basically puts in this thing, like, I want to send an email saying this. And then it creates the whole thing in a very professional manner with a great quote and all these other things. Yeah. So it can make people um, sound more professional. No bad thing. Uh, I imagine it can convey tone, et cetera. I think my, my real point is, is it does the heavy lifting. So if you're thinking about burning out and if you're thinking about, you know, there's too much work to be done and then a piece of technology comes along and can do some of it, I'd be really excited by that. Because it's not like, for example, I've written blogs with it, but I haven't. The, the thing doesn't write the blog. It writes the start of stuff. And then I will finesse it because otherwise there isn't things in there that I would want as a writer. But that means that a lot of the heavy lifting's done. And by the way, just a quick one on the chat DPT. I'm not an advert for it by any stretch. I think actually there's lots of limitations. It also makes stuff up. So, you know, if you're using a free version of an AI tool that's out there to do your work, please don't. OK, please don't. Because that's bad. That would be bad advice. Because it, remember, it's free. So even OpenAI at the moment saying, remember, this thing is not infallible. You're not asking God what God thinks. It just feels like it's amazing, but it's an, it doesn't know what it's talking about. It's just scraping data. It's just spinning stuff. So it doesn't really know what it's talking about. However, having said that, it really depends on what you believe about art. So same principle here would be with like Dali 2, which I think I talked about at the uh, certainly my TED talk, and maybe it talked with you guys as well, was um, you know six months ago, it wasn't really that clever and wasn't that nuanced. Now look at it. And if you now look at what Dali 2 can do, it's completely different to what it could do six months, nine months ago. It will be the same, by the way, with OpenAI, which is the same system underneath it, because what they're doing is very clever. They're getting everyone to use it for free, and then the system will learn more and more, because that's what AI does. It feeds off data. And so when you've got the data hose inside it, then that means it'll become better and better and better. Now, it depends which side of the world you want to look at at this moment. You can look at it and go, this is a fearful tool, and we should try to ban it, which is exactly what people did with Uber and taxi driving. Okay, good luck. But that is literally where you'd be. You'd be a taxi driver not wanting to use Uber. And that's okay. You've got every right not to. You know, build your own. You know, AI systems are out there. Build your own. I think this will be, by the way, the real future of digital comms is, well, one of the potential futures is utilizing technology, which just does so much nuance and gives you so much data and, and information about your people that you can never get the tone wrong. That that's the exciting bit, you know, using data to make sure so, and all using data, even better, using machines to make it so personalized. So instead of sending out a newsletter to 100 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people, you send out 10,000 newsletters. So you do the marketing to one, which is what we all should do anyway, because what you do as a human being, don't you? you talk to the individual. Now, data allows us to do that. Technology allows us to do that. And GPT 3.5 might allow us to do it. GPT 4 most probably will. At some point, however, they will close the doors and make you pay. Because, of course, that's what technology companies do. So I don't think we should get over-reliant on it. It's not going to beat humans yet, but it's not meant to. It's meant to augment human beings and add value. We need to stop being scared of this. It's like being scared of a, like a laptop because you're no longer writing it by pen. My dad was. He used to use typewriters. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that he was right. I mean, he'd still say he's right. He's a vicar. He can't really be wrong. But, you know, that's the way life is. I hear your point, and I, you know, and I totally get all of that. And I really hope that I... I'm not coming across as a Debbie Downer on the tech front, but <laughs> but what, what my but is I have just been looking at a report which you know was published in 2021, so arguably isn't the newest report, but it was a UK-wide analysis of employee sentiment, and one of the things 
It was actually published by Carrie-Anne and Box, and it's called IC UK 21. And one of the things that I took away from it was the idea that at that point, and again, granted, I appreciate that's almost two years old now, but that employees were saying that the mass communication method of internal communicators was by no means as effective in terms of engaging hearts and minds as small team huddles and the extent to which employees feel listened to and part of the kind of strategic creation of forward movement. So I guess where I'm thinking at the moment is this AI sounds great in terms of broad brush blanket messaging to the entire organization to get information out to the entire organization. But it doesn't sound to me as if it particularly solves this conundrum that internal comms currently has around building inclusion and doing so via kind of two-way, inclusive, interactive, participative communication. No, I, I completely hear what you're saying. I appreciate your, your, your point there. And again, I'm not here on behalf of OpenAI just because we're talking about technology. So your flock itself is based on teams. It's not based on company culture approach. It's not based on a mass approach. And in fact, personally, I believe that the future of most communication and marketing is a one-to-one model but it's only possible with using technologies. You look at something like, I say, using your flock, we don't go for like a thousand people at once. We break it down into teams of 10 to 15 for that very point of nuance that you're talking about. And your flock is actually based on the idea of continually giving feedback, human beings giving feedback to other human beings. Your flock itself doesn't use an AI system for the very point you're talking about, because I don't think AI is that clever yet to become that manager, to have that humanity, to bring the humane back into human resources and to have the you know, the proper human understanding and the nuance that you might need. It's also much, much harder in a, to, for human beings to do their stuff without an office and potentially without the fire pit we used to have, which is, uh, you know, people gathering together around one point that created sometimes created the company culture. Anyway, that's a, that's a separate question. Uh, however, without, again, voting too much for this open AI thing, I think it allows you to do the opposite to what you're saying. I think it actually does allow you to do one-to-one messaging. And that's why it's so exciting because it, instead of you doing like 100 newsletters, you do 1,000, which wouldn't be possible without the AI system. And by the way, I'm not talking about it now. I'm talking about it in the future. So it would be the AI system with sentiment analysis underneath it. We should understand individuals based on their social graph, which is a much, much bigger conversation. But again, it's all very possible. It's also very possible by reading Slack messages and email messages to get sentiment and where they are and how high their employment engagement score is, for example, from your flock. I mean, if it integrated with that, you'd know that you'd need to push certain messages if they weren't being engaged at work. And again, we then get to this point where people get very scared and they start going, oh, my God, what about privacy? What about me? What about me as a person? But there's also a much gentler way of looking at it. If I know lots about you and I know that you're a very caring person because of the values that you use with your flock, I know that as an organization, as a team, we haven't been particularly caring. I then, as a decent enough manager, I need to be listening, don't I? I need to be empathetic, but I might not have those data points. When I've got them, I can then think, oh, well, maybe the newsletter needs to talk about caringness more. Or maybe it should talk about, but each newsletter might be different based on values. This is the future you could do. If you knew your values of the people you were talking to, you could base the newsletter based on their value system, yeah? Which is what you kind of want to do because that's great marketing. Just like an advert that says, hey, Dan, your mate's just bought these trainers. Do you want to look as cool as him? That's the future of marketing. It's just not possible to do it as a billboard. 
but we want to move away from billboard advertising anyway. We have done for referencing Seth Godin once again and guerrilla marketing and Jay Conrad Livingstone and all these other things. You know, I've been talking about this for 25 years. The reason why I'm so excited is because I think technology now gives us the opportunity to do so. I don't think it's right now, though, Kat, to be completely honest with you. And I'm with Jenna, you know, I'm a bit of a massive geek. So I, and I also am renowned for being early in the market. Okay, like literally that is that is my job to be early. Not the canary in the in the coal mine, because that's the wrong analogy, but certainly and not even the boy that cries wolf, but the person who most probably drinks a bit too much coffee and gets very excited about the future of the world. I'm trying not to do the same with the metaverse. I've not done that yet, because I'm I'm out with that one. I don't think we've got the data yet. But with this AI, I'm a bit excited. Sorry. But anyway, prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. You most probably all will. Prove me wrong. But also prove me right and, you know, and make your lives easier with technology. That's a happy thing, yeah? We don't all have to work 20 hours a day. We could always not. And, you know, work two hours a day, get with the same amount of output, and spend more time on the beach. Remember, that's the point of technology. The whole point of technology is to stop us working so hard. It's not to replace us. It's just to stop us working so hard. Well, Dan, look, can I pick up on some of the things? So I'm not a geek, but I can see lots of things that are attractive in what you're saying. And I particularly like your historical references, because every time I think, I'm sure I could be proved wrong with this, but lots of times I say that when technology has been feared, in actual fact, it has generated more opportunities. It's generated more employment and it's helped people apply their skills in different ways. And I think that's one of the things you're saying for internal communicators. So I guess if we're freed as communicators from some of the the drudgery, if you like, of the work, then it means we can focus on different things. And, I, and two of those, which are particularly interesting, you referred to around the use of language and the use of culture. So for those of us who are either internal communicators within or advising companies that are moving to be more distributed, more on demand. How important do you see language and culture and their formation in helping make the most of AI in those situations and the most of what I call loosely in my non-geek way, the digital revolution? What you're saying is absolutely right. This, this is the reason why it's called the fourth industrial revolution. Yeah, we're not, we're not, we haven't bounced onto the fifth already. And please do Google the fourth one because it's all about data and com- you know, the computing ones already happened. This next one's actually powered by this whole potential change anyway of hybrid work. And I wish we'd get rid of the term hybrid now. I think after nine or two years of doing it, let's just call it work. Very few people go into the office five days a week. And those who do, you shouldn't really talk to because they're weird. No, kidding. That's absolutely, that was a joke, an unnecessary one. My apologies. Point though was, you actually see the correlation actually between uh, those who want five days in the office and their demographics. It's actually, Bruce Daisy did some brilliant work. In fact, he references some brilliant work done here. And it literally is, if they're of a certain age, demographic, male, tend to be older, tend to be whatever, they're the people who want everyone back into the offices more. Yeah, so actually this this new way of working is much more diverse and inclusive, which is why I'm so passionate about it. It's not just a, I like working from home. It's more people can therefore work at home and do things differently and we can become async and we can work in different ways. Now, this does not come without problems. Obviously, we did this during the pandemic. I mean, one of the problems isn't productivity, though, and they keep half people do who want to defend the office way of life, talk about productivity. But statistically, it's not true. We actually were more productive during the pandemic. And it's about 75% of people reported that's the case. Don't get me wrong. Please don't say, but no, Dan, not butchers. Butchers can't work remotely. I understand, right? If you're a pilot, maybe not. I get it. But please don't use those people for kind of diluting the conversation we're having because that's what people do. They go, oh, yeah, what about doctors? You wouldn't want them to work remotely on heart surgery because everyone would die. And it's like, A, what? What are you? I mean, like, what is that conversation? B, 
actually there's now we can see that computers can start actually doing open heart surgery remotely so there's a scary thing for you and you can also learn how to do surgeries remotely which is why it's amazing for education because you can start learning remotely anyway point being is that the reason why communication now is absolutely critical is this very reason that we're going to be going remote and hybridly it becomes tenfold more important yeah because it's driven by potential uncertainty because of the model at the moment. People are still going through this bit of a crisis. Remember, we've also had three years of trauma or two years or one year, depending where you had lockdown and didn't. You know, and that was a traumatic moment. Yeah? Now, this uncertainty moment's really, I talk about neuroscience a lot, but uncertainty is one of the worst emotions you can put someone through. And if you're not communicating, I mean, there's a great quote, and I'll put it at the bottom of the, from the podcast, but there's a great quote. It's something like, you know, every hour you spend communicating, you save 10 hours dealing with the problems of not communicating. Yeah, and that's just as a manager. So imagine that en masse. Yeah. And in the times of, and believe me, I think in the modern world now, I don't think we can say in the times of post-pandemic, I think we've gone past that, hopefully. And I do say touch wood because, my goodness, no one wants COVID to be coming back. This new world of the distributed model of highly, potentially highly efficient in their own time working, where it's based on objectives, et cetera, you're going to need to communicate more than ever. And you're going to have to need to communicate subtly with nuance to individuals and not en masse. It cannot be a blanket approach because how would you know if, you know, like you need to know the person you're talking to much more than you used to. Like you'll need to know your team members more. You'll need to know, do individuals want to be coming back to the office? Some people who are young want to be coming back to the offices. Awesome. That's great. Then they're going to be coming back on a Tuesday and Wednesday. Well, you should know that as the communicator. You'll need to know what message you'll need to be delivering to those people who are coming back into the office and when they're coming back. So actually your job is now even more complicated and more important than it's ever been. Now, that could scare the heck out of everybody. They're like, oh, my God, before I was just writing nice stuff. Now I've got to link into data points. And when people are arriving in the office management role, yeah, I'm afraid your job's evolved massively. In fact, I think now you're, we're in a danger where we could put too much on internal communicators. We've got to start hiring other folk that can help them, which is like why you have heads of people and the new kind of head of remote work, which you'll have to be bringing in. But again, that's beyond my pay grade. I'm not a boss of a massive company. But if I was, the money I'm saving from use, from the office space and the money I'm potentially saving from people not leaving my organization, I'd be putting into people. And you've got to spend three times the amount of money on people than you do on technology. So, you know, let's not kill ourselves. This is still a people game. Which kind of brings us back to a topic that we've been tentatively addressing in some of the podcasts around manager and leadership communication and the extent to which people in management and leadership positions are actually skilled and adept communicators. And I think the conclusions that we've drawn is that there's a big opportunity for people working in management and leadership positions to upskill themselves. And sorry to be the boring person that comes back to research, but going back to the um, carry-on and box report that I mentioned earlier, there's definitely a point in that report that indicated that many, many employees don't feel that their managers and leaders have got the right communication skills and competences to communicate effectively for the betterment of all at work. So I think that's something, and I know, again, guys, I know we keep kind of weaving that as a substrand in and out of these podcast episodes, but that is definitely an opportunity, isn't it? 
But it really, I mean, it has to be, doesn't it? But we also can't do that thing where we kind of, sometimes people can point fingers at leaders. And I'm, I'm known for this slightly as well, because I'm always like, servant leadership should be the new model. We need to be more empathetic as leaders. We need to know about our teams more using tools like your flock and tenantman analysis and all these things. But we've got to remember, you know, leaders are, and team leaders and bosses are the same human beings that went through the same process we did. You know, during the pandemic, 95% of people were thinking about quitting their job. You know, that's the bosses as well. That's bosses of businesses were thinking of leaving. That's C-suite were thinking about leaving. Everyone's going to the great resignation. They're not not human beings. We've all had these same pressures. And they do need training and development, just like everybody else does. I'm amazed, however, as you know, as I meet a variety of different folk, and I talked about this on Inspiring Change uh, the other week with Scott McKinnons, you know, these... There's always going to be a resistance to new leadership models. Of course there is. But I'm always amazed with actually how much resistance you really do get from someone who's done it the same way for 20 years. And because it's kind of crept up on people. You know, we've been talking about for 10 years, true. But actually, a lot of people thought, oh, this is we are nice to have. It'd be nice when I'm a nice boss. I don't need to worry about that yet. And now people are leaving. They're like, oh, sugar lumps. Maybe I should have been more empathetic and listened to people and thought about parental leave more because people are leaving and should I should have thought about remote work more. However, don't get me wrong, it doesn't because we're not going to know what the future is. When you look at some of the outlining companies at the moment, you know, I hate to say the word Elon Musk, but you know, he's literally by the amount I'm going on the radio talking about him, he's putting my kids through college at the moment. It's a fair play to him. Um, so, you know, what else can he do wrong or what else can he do right? We're going to see every three days or every couple of days, it seems to be another mad thing that he's done. And we'll see. I'm really hoping that the future of work isn't the Elon Musk way of doing stuff. And we don't go back to the dark days of, of basically working people in kind of, you know, factory. But have you seen the fact he's put beds in the rooms now and so beds in the offices so people can sleep there? And, you know, we've gone back to the 20 years or 10 years ago in tech. And his whole thing about it's either my way or the highway and firing all the board and just everything he seems to do seems to be harking back to a bad old days of doing it. But of course, you know, his dad did own an emerald mine. So maybe that's where it comes from. <laughs> right. He is a bit of an anomaly. Let's let he is an anomaly. I think what I would say is, you know, just as in the same way that technology has kind of crept up on us, well. It's crept up on us exponentially, hasn't it, in the last 15 to 20 years. But I think what's interesting is that, you know, as listeners will know, I used to work in headhunting. And so I've seen many a job description in my time. And on almost every job description I've ever seen has been listed, must be a good communicator. And I know offline, Dom and Jen, we've had conversations about what that even means. And I think that is a really poignant kind of note is that actually we do need to all practice and hone our communication skills to ensure not just that we can get our messages across but that we are listening actively listening and integrating the feedback that we receive from others and so yeah I agree with your point Dan about you know being careful to point fingers at people who are in management and leadership positions but I think actually top priority for all of us in 2023 and beyond has to be to rediscover the art of conversation and the art of communication as an ongoing iterative skill set that will never arrive at a finish point of but it you know we all need to keep communication sort of front and center as a skill that we must focus on to continuously improve otherwise if we fall back on digital communication that never quite delivers 
the sense of community and connection that we know is integral to organisational survival moving forward. Can I ask a question about that then? Because I think that's a great point. But I also think that we are facing increasing number of leaders who are pushing back. So only recently we saw Dyson in, in the Times in the UK making a very passionate case against flexibility at work, against people being agile in the way they operate. And one of his key arguments was it doesn't keep people together. And I think, Dan, you've mentioned this word culture. So it'd be great just to get a flavour of you of, from you of where you've seen organisations that have been both distributed and yet had a strong culture. What have they done? And I guess leaders are crucial, but what else have they done to bring people that sense of community? And how do we make a case, if you like, to more reluctant bosses that, to help us do this? <laughs> yeah, I just realised. And there was at least three questions there. And if I was clever enough to do all of them in one go, that would be amazing. I'm, sadly, I'm not that clever. But I, but I will, will say what people can do. But, of course, that is, it's literally listening to what Kat was saying. And it is, of course, the segue into the point of listening. And, of course, you know, leaders who don't want to listen would most probably would come up with diktats that they believe to be the way the world is and they liked it before because they didn't listen before. And so, you know, the, the gentleman who, who made all his fortune from apparently coming being in a shed and being in a factory, he most probably would quite like the fact that everyone was around him. But I don't know the Dyson individual particularly well. I, I also guess he might own properties. Again, I'm not saying that he does. I know that Lord Sugar most probably does and other people are very vocal about getting people back into their properties, owns properties. So I always get a bit worried about, you know, why is someone telling me to do something when the data says that might not be the best for me or even the organisation? And sometimes it's because they have other interests involved, especially political, sadly. There's a whole political gambit that goes with this as well. And I'm not going to touch that with the barge pole. But certainly you've got lots of things you do. The key one, of course, is listening. You know, ask your people first and you'll find out the answers to these things. What other companies do really well, of course, and this is what the difference between um, remote forced and remote first and maybe if you were going into a bit more of a remote model, you should start looking at what people who have been doing remote work and been doing these things for 10 years or so, which is main, sometimes tech companies, but not all. They've been doing things you know, for a very long time that didn't need an office. And so they kind of were naturally born into it. It's a bit like being uh, you know, young enough to be naturally you know, digital native. Uh, you know, same kind of principle. You know, you'd, if I want a TikTok video made, I, I don't go to someone, I don't go to my dad because he doesn't know what TikTok is. I must probably go to my daughter, even though she shouldn't know what TikTok was. So I'd be naughty of her. But anyway, that's <laughs> can't stop him from using it sometimes. Anyway, but, you know, so you go, you go to younger people. So I think there's always going to be people that you can learn from. And certainly not very, you don't have to do very much searching on the internet to find them. But certain things like company retreats are a big one. I think we've got to be very conscious of how we gather together now. And that, again, is a cognitive load that someone will need to take on it'll be a job role about getting everyone together in certain places and how we do that and how we become more humane i think is a the role in communication is going to become more and more important and that will have to be spread out not just one person's job it'll have to be you know a skill set that that gets dispersed and the same thing again with being, you know, being more empathetic and being more open to things and being more human and being nicer all these things remember it's something like 78 percent of people leave bad bosses and bad management that's the reason why people leave businesses yeah, so it's not just the fact that the company culture isn't created. It's the fact that it's a negative or toxic company culture of why people leave. You know, you've also got tremendous low levels of engagement and employee engagement in lots of things. And again, this is not just one person's job. This is lots of the company needs to come together, especially management and leaders, and start thinking, how do we tackle this together and talking to your employees more? It's literally, we're just, we're all human beings trying to do the very best we can most of the time with our jobs. And of course, if the employee market starts to get more, I wouldn't say aggressively, because I don't think it's aggressive at all. But you know, if there's more power to the people by the end of it, I don't personally think that's a bad thing. I think it just means that 
companies are going to have to get better at their brand message at their employee brand, their employee experience and things like onboarding. I think we've been allowed to get away with it for far too long because we've had the psychological crux of the company office in the space we force people into. And when that's gone, it's starting to show that a lot of companies didn't really have a very good company culture. But remember, of course, company culture isn't, you know, having having having, uh, beanbags and having, uh, you know, 430 beers and all these other horrible cliches that people did 10 years ago. And then everyone copied because they thought that was a good company culture. A good company culture will be different for every single company and every different size of company, depending on what they do and even the, the teams in their companies. And again, this is why your flock works on teams, doesn't work in companies, works on teams and teams values, because every team has a different culture. You know, And so the bigger question for people in the C-suite and for leaders of the future is going to be, how do we consciously gather together to make sure that we create this company culture so it isn't just an employee moment a contractual kind of you know very very transitional relationship because of course if you do that people will leave just for money and um, that of course is a danger in itself there's so much that you've just been talking about that that resonates with me and it also just it's actually made my me cast my mind back to think about my i'm a marketeer have been for mm, 20 odd years or so when it was all about above the line below the line it was all about print it was all about let's integrate our communications and you know i remember my first digital marketing campaign was all about let's get the facts going we could make this work to get more instant messaging you know i remember those days (laughs) oh gosh but and like you say so much has changed in that time and it feels like with all the things that we've talked about, there's this next wave of systemic change driven, but it's also compounded systemic change, I would say, with economics, businesses, how we make money, how we sell, how we innovate, how we move at pace, but also with this this change in people and what work means and how we make it better. But also on the backdrop, as you quite say, three years of trauma three years of uncertainty there are some people that i, I was at a thing the other week where they're saying well with this we need to get people back in so we're and everyone's going on about we're mandating people and again because i think there's this fear of control when things are moving around you in a way that you can't always touch or reach or move we feel like we need to control something as opposed to learn from something I just think it's a really funny time. And as, and I guess I don't know what my question is really is about as we go through what I think is another systemic shift in terms of how technology is moving forward, how we as humans are moving forward, how now actually businesses can't ignore some of these things that perhaps they could because there's been a power shift. We're also on, you know, uncertainty, well-being, burnout, what we want work to look and feel and everything like. I guess is the future, this next systemic chef is about, this is actually about people and technology coming together as opposed to thinking about them being at odds with each other. Yeah, I mean, you know, you do a much better job than I to kind of explain the future of work, in my opinion. That's exactly what it will be. It will be the times when if you do not start using technology now, then I think you will be in trouble later. But I think I've always been saying that for a while. But this next bit, which is, as you say, systematic systematic change or paradigm shift, accelerated by the post-pandemic world, accelerated because of the economic things. And a good friend of mine, Tom Cheesewright, right, a couple of years ago, he came up with a book that said high frequency change. And he predicted that you know today will be the slowest amount of change you're going to have. It's always going to get quicker. And he's been absolutely right. All that's happened is, is the change has got quicker and quicker and quicker. So actually, our ability now is not... Almost, almost nothing apart from dealing with the changes as they come up and dealing with this and becoming not necessarily more resilient, but more adaptive 
around change because you know gpt4 or something else or something else there's always going to be something another uh, shiny new element on the thing on the horizon however there is a gear shift when it comes with artificial intelligence if it kicks in because it changes the relationship of all of it exactly the same thing with remote work it changes the relationship with work it's the same principle isn't it before everyone went to the field and we plowed the fields and then there were machines that plowed the fields but uh, you know as, as other people have rightly said it didn't stop work it just meant work became something else remember in a lot of jobs you know if you look at what the jobs of the future are going to be lots of them aren't created yet you know even the skill sets aren't really that created yet you know i could come up with lots of stats and they're all pretty boring on it but but the reality is it's the same thing if you're teaching purely about an, an ability which isn't a soft which isn't a soft skill at the moment a technical ability i'd always be worried i'll give you a good example lawyers believe that what they did could not be touched by ai now ai now it's about 27% of what a lawyer can do can now be done by AI systems. There's now you know, 8,000 startups firing this space. It's worth billions of pounds. Technology is coming for that space, but it's also coming for spaces inside farming, which people would never have thought about. And it's doing so because of data and because of you know, 5G and all sorts of clever stuff, which farmers have never really considered because they're not technologists. Now, the dangerous thing I think is if in your sector, and believe me, communications is nowhere, we're not removed from this. If you allow technologists to do your job, the technology will win and you will lose if you don't harness the technology. So if you're not a clever farmer at the moment and you're not looking at how data makes you grow better crops, and it can do, then unfortunately something like Amazon might come in and start buying land and then becoming farmers. Now, without being too political about it and being too grandiose on it, I do some work with Def and some other folk, but it's quite a scary future if we believe that we should give it all to the technologists because the technologists will do it without any nuance. They'll do it purely on market forces, and they'll most probably crush any kind of you know resistance to, 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 to them coming in and taking over. So we've got to be really careful, I think, especially in uh, internal communications. I think we've got to remain really positive about technology, knowing that we can use technology and data to make our lives easier, but also to make other people's lives better. Because if we do that, then I think you've got a real chance to change the world. And really, deep down, I mean, change companies, deep down, that's what all internal communicators want to do, isn't it? We want to help people become, I don't not necessarily better people, but certainly more engaged in the company they're in and the company become healthier and better and more resilient because of it. And I think we've got a huge opportunity to use technology to do so. I'd be really sad if we didn't take that on. And I think you might find that other parts of the world might use technology to start encroaching in that spot if you didn't. As a, an Intel communicator, if you like, I've heard three key things from what you've said. One is really important, don't fear this technology don't fear it and in fact you just said harness it because we can actually use it to our advantage i think you've also said that uh, we're going through a period of uncertainty and that's a terrible emotion and as communicators we can do a lot to reduce that sense of uncertainty and we've also talked about the importance of culture and in particular leaders and their listening uh, and their ability to connect with people so let me ask as an internal communicator what do you think are the key opportunities that uh, the situation you've described or the advancement technology that we're looking at, what are the key opportunities for us as internal communicators, do you think? The biggest opportunity, and of course, as I say, this this is like uh, the old classic uh, you know, future gazing kind of moment. And you could go one year, three year, five years. I'm not going to go five years. because I think anyone who's trying to predict the five years away is, is almost insane because there's very little way of doing that, I think, at the moment because everything's moving so quickly. But if you're not using data to make better data-driven decisions on a nuanced level as a communicator, when you've got the opportunity to, then I think that's a big opportunity missed. And again, you could start looking into, and you could start arguing, you know, but there's things about privacy and all these other things, absolutely. But, you know, if you're not using sentiment analysis tools, 
you're not looking at how do you rapidly personalize messages, then other people will. And it won't be just about how well you write the message. It'll be how well you've written the message to each individual or each team or each whatever, depending on the numbers you're working on. So maybe that kind of answers the top one, which is you've got to be data and data driven. And I think in some way, we've almost got to become technologists first rather than writers and communicators first, which I, I imagine scares the heck out of lots of people. But, you know, just like myself, I've been in marketing for many, many years and I kind of moved slightly out of marketing because I could see that marketing was becoming more about numbers and more about hyper personalization and more about being a data scientist than it was about being a creative. So I started to gently move out of marketing for that very reason, very reason I invested in your flock. So, so, so you know, I, I saw this this coming thing. Now, it depends. It's your own skill set, isn't it? It depends what you want to do. The other one I'd say is, you know, it's about human beings more than anything else. So that technology I'm talking about and being data driven is just listening. It's just listening en masse. And it's listening to stuff that perhaps people aren't telling you, which I know sounds ridiculous, but that's the joy of data, isn't it? The joy of data and the joy of knowledge is you can then work out and do predictive analysis on things that perhaps people didn't even realize yet, which is, of course, what sentiment analysis is. And same with using things like your flock with uh, employment engagement scores and, and happiness levels. You know, in the future, you could change your newsletters based on how engaged they were at work, what their psychological profile might be or whatever tool you're going to use and you know whether it's a tuesday and they're in the office you know you've got <laughs> you've then got you know it's not a black and white communication it's now a rainbow it's like a myriad of of seventy thousand potential colors you know that would be the beauty of it but of course that could be well and well ahead in the future so so um start looking at that i think but obviously don't get too worried about it but i, I also think that with the tools available to you it might not be you know five years away it might well be two years away so i think it'd be worth looking at Oh, that was brilliant, Dan. Thank you. I mean, I think Dom, isn't it? We were, I think I can't remember which one of us is wrapping up today's episode, but um, there's so much to take from that. And I think it's it does feel scary when so much is changing around you and technology feels like it's this looming thing that's going to take. But may, I think the thing that we say is let's be curious. You're curious humans. So be curious about tech. Be curious about it and embrace it as your friend and then see how it can help you to focus on the human work that we need to do. I think that's, that, that's exactly it. You know, I think even though it's tremendously egotistical to end on a quote from myself, but I'm going to do it because I'm massively egotistical. So about seven years ago, I said, um, oh, what did I say? I've got to remember now. Um, oh, yeah, with the right people, the right technology, you can take over the world. But with the wrong people and the wrong technology, that world might take over you. And even though that does sound rather scary, I think it does kind of give a seed of the example of where we could go with the next bit. And I think if you rightly said, if you can harness this technology, which you can, because none of us are not capable of doing so. We're all intelligent, nuanced people. It's just a mindset. And that growth mindset, of course, is going to be key for not just the future of work, but for the future of the world. Dan, that is a wonderful note to end on. And thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and chatting us through that and um, making us feel inevitably calm about technology, which is a wonderful thing to feel. So thank you so much for your time. And um, hopefully everyone will tune in for the next episode. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have, please like it and share it with your friends and colleagues on your preferred digital channels. Every recommendation helps us spread the word to build a better, more connected and inclusive future of work. Thanks for listening.